Hello, everybody. It's Trish Carr with another episode of Sister to Sister. Welcome to Black History Month. It's February. This is when we actually get to celebrate our history, our American history, by highlighting those people who are uh, those people of color who made a difference in our history. And, you know, since we're mentioning this, I really, I've been putting up some Black history moments on my uh, Facebook page and in Women's Prosperity Network's Facebook pages. And, you know, today I want to just shine a light before we get into having a conversation with our guest. And I promise you, this is going to be a lively conversation. So I invite you to share. See that button? Click that button and share because we're going to have a, a, a heartfelt, true conversation about racism and how we can be anti-racist, how we can be an ally, what we can do to make a difference in the racial feelings that are going on in our country. And before we do that, I really want to honor uh, one of the uh, our members, Michelle Burt. Michelle's mother, Lillian McGill, is in the Civil Rights Hall of Fame. You know, so often we're side by side with people and yet we don't know their history. So I want to share with you uh, Michelle's history about her mom. Her mom played a crucial role in the early civil rights movement as secretary of uh, a group called the Lowndes County Christian Movement for Human Rights. And the chairperson of that group called her the brains of the movement. She took care of finances. She traveled far and wide raising funds for the organization. Um, she delivered powerful speeches at meetings, shaped decisions of the executive committee, and religiously canvassed every day of the week. She quit her part-time job with the Department of Agriculture and joined the SNCC, uh, which was a group that was developed in the wake of student-led sit-ins at segregated lunch counters. So you remember that from your history books. And she worked tirelessly going from door to door, recruiting people for the movement seven days a week. And I just wanted to raise a glass to her and to all of those who paved a better way for all of us. So thank you, Lillian McGill. Thank you, Michelle Burt, for sharing with me about your mom. And I urge all of you to look up Lillian McGill and check out what she did and the history that she is a part of that she made change in this world. And thank you for being with us today on Sister to Sister. I have an amazing guest as I always do. And today's guest has an amazing background and is so well-versed beyond her own personal experience being a black woman. She has a master's degree in sociology she has written a parenting uh, manual that was actually used by the Jefferson County, Texas Child Protective Services. She spent the 20, past 20 years in various roles in higher education as a sociology professor, a faculty manager, a director of undergraduate degree programs. She also has a bachelor's degree in theology. So she has a ministry and is a licensed minister. And really her goal in life is to work with people so that they live their best lives 
and focus especially on relationships because they're the foundation of everything. So please, I hear you all cheering right now. Please put it together for Tiffany Davis. Tiffany, thank you so much for being with me today. Appreciate you being here. Thank you, Trish. It's an honor. Yeah, well, I feel the same way. First of all, because this conversation, we, we get candid. You know, we talk about what's your experience as a woman of color right now in the United States and in your past. And oftentimes that's opening up things that you may not have thought about for a long time. So I really honor you for being willing to be vulnerable, for being willing to share. And especially you bring this added piece of uh, what you know about sociology and how our identity shapes uh, is shaped by all of those things. But before we get into that, so I thought it was really interesting about how you picked sociology for your major. Tell everybody that story because I think it's so fun. <laughs> well, I wanted to be an actress slash model and go to uh, a school for drama in New York City. And here I am, a small town Louisiana girl. My father told me he wasn't paying for school for anything like that. So go to school for something practical. I picked up a college catalog from the school that I had chosen, flipped it up, and it landed on sociology. And so here I am. If it just flipped one more page, I would have been a social worker or something else. <laughs> it's amazing. Threw the book up in sociology, and you found that this was something you were really drawn to once you realized what it was. Thank goodness. <laughs> I really did. I, I love the, the discipline. I love teaching the other students about it in my classes because I think it has such a powerful impact beyond anyone just wanting to major in the field. A, a lot of students have to take introduction to sociology just as a basic general course. But one of the things that they learn when they are in the class is just how we end up um, formulating our views and our beliefs and and learn. And one thing I always tell the students is that, um, you know, there's no right or wrong in our beliefs. Oftentimes there's just a difference in what we believe. And I try to encourage them to respect those differences. So oftentimes there's just such an awakening in uh, my, my introduction classes that is truly amazing. It's a ministry in and of itself. I love, you know, I don't want to let that go and pass that over. There is no right or wrong in our beliefs. They are our beliefs. And they were, they were, they've come to us for a reason. And it doesn't mean because I disagree with you that I'm wrong. It simply believe is that my belief just differs from yours. That's all. So, and and that's really part of why we have the sister to sister show is because. We talk about being socialized, you know, when you're when you're brought up, you're socialized in a particular way and that shapes your identity. You your dad was in the military, right? Yes. And you traveled a lot, I, I would imagine. We did. We had the pleasure of staying on many different bases, different places around the U.S. And that really created a different experience for me because I was able to meet people from different backgrounds and that was one of the best things about my uh, experience as a child, being able to meet other people from different races and different cultures and, and even realizing then too early on that even though I might have been the same color as somebody, our culture was still different. You know, it might have been because they were from a different 
uh, a part of the U.S. or even uh, their religion, how their differences in religion influence them. So just because we're the same color doesn't mean that we think the same. Amen to that. Right. It doesn't yes. mean that it's, you know, if you're all Chinese people don't think the same, all Vietnamese people don't think the same, all black people. Right. That terminology of it in and of itself is so limiting because black people, just like white people, come from all different places here in the United States. My background is Irish, German, Native American. Right. What's where's your background from? Well, I did do the Ancestry.com and it's from um, the, the Ghana area. That That's where um, a lot of my ancestors are from. That's cool. That's really cool. That must have been fun doing that, the Ancestry thing. Yeah, it is. So talk to me a little bit about how our identities are shaped. Like, for example, you growing up and moving around a lot, I imagine you were a minority most of the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the schools that we were in, even though, again, the, the Air Force bases, they were diverse. We still ended up being the minority, you know, in, in the classrooms and in the community. But, you know, there's we have these messages that are communicated all throughout society that help to form our identity. And many of the behaviors that are communicated on about racial identity uh, communicate a status of a lesser to people of color. And these are called racial uh, microaggressions, and they're very subtle. But the the behaviors and the harms and the insults, you know, it invalidates people and it has a harming effect. So, you know, microaggression might be comments like, um, if a person doesn't look American, oh, well, where are you from? Just automatically assuming they're not American. And I used to get this one a lot. Uh, well, you don't talk black. If I, I know. Well, I just I speak English. I don't know what you want from me. You know, yeah. and you hear things like that. You hear things like, well, I don't see color. And that's actually a really dangerous thing right there, because, you know, striving to be a colorblind society ignores the very uniqueness of who of who I am. And it requires me then to be part of a melting pot ideology that expects me to assimilate to a dominant culture and a, and a dominant culture that doesn't see my dark skin and wide nose and thick lips on me as, as beautiful. Or they view the heritage that I'm from that helped to build this country as irrelevant and only worthy of a paragraph or two in our history books. So the, the, the society that I live in, you know, it, it in, in the norms and in, in the conditions that have historically marginalized people of color, you know, it's overflowing with these subtle things like microaggressions that has a very harmful effect. Yeah. And, and, you know, we talk about microaggressions and you gave a really good example. You don't talk black or, or even in the business, in the workplace, somebody might not say that, but instead they might say, oh, you're so articulate as if they expected you to be something else. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And the sad thing is oftentimes people don't mean any harm by it. Of course. But because we aren't willing to have a healthy discourse in this country about race, we're not willing to learn, we're not able to learn. And therefore, we have these different sets of rules that's, uh, that we have to play by. And that's why, you know, I, I said this is like surviving Black, 
because you have to learn how to survive being black in America. You must fight through the war that is being placed on our minds that's trying to label blacks as inferior because as a man thinketh, so is he. And we have a history of psychological, sociological and spiritual theorizing with the objective of making black people think that they are inferior and making other people think that black people are inferior. When in fact, you know, once upon a time, it was illegal to even teach blacks how to read. And then when blacks were allowed to be educated, the only thing that was inferior in the classroom at that point were the books and the learning materials that students have. And then you fast forward now to present time and we have black schools, but still with outdated books, no internet, over crowded classrooms, which makes it difficult to thrive. And then you hear things in the media about the disappearing black father subject and the theories about why, which ignores the history of social welfare programs like New York City's man in the house rule, which required workers to make unannounced visits to, to determine if a father was even living in a home. And if evidence of a male presence was there, their welfare checks were discontinued. So then you have people that will say, well, just don't get on welfare. So then do we just ignore the racism and discriminatory practices in the workforce that puts blacks at a disadvantage? So surviving black means you have to learn to deal with this. It means you have to learn that in spite of, you know, we can still try to make it. It's not easy all the time, but it's still possible. And the way we do this is by how we socialize our black children. We are constantly trying to raise them up to not just survive, but to thrive in our society. And unfortunately, conversations that black parents have to have with their black children don't happen in white households. And really because it's probably because they don't see a need to do that. Of you course. Know, my son uh, who's 26 just moved out here uh, from Conroe, Texas, um, to Conroe, Texas from uh, another state. and. I had to help him to learn how now to navigate in this new place that that he's living at. And this new place in Conroe, Texas, you know, is a place that um, is known for its its racial injustice. Uh, it's, and it's, it's just a really sad, um, you know, the cases in which black men have been um, wrongly accused of things right here in, in Conroe, Texas. I don't know if you ever watched the movie called Whitewash. And whitewashes, you can see that on Amazon, but it's about Clarence Brandley, who was wrongfully convicted of killing a white girl at the school he worked at as a janitor, and evidence just mysteriously disappeared, and people in courts lied. And years later, people recanted their story, and he was uh, eventually released and let, uh, let out of prison. And the state judge in 1987, the state district judge said that no case has been presented in which a more shocking scenario of the effects of racial prejudice, um, per, uh, perjury and witness intimidation and an investigation that outcome of which was predetermined had ever existed before. So I'm telling my son that this is where you live and telling my son that just three weeks ago in Conroe, Texas, they hosted Donald Trump, which tells a whole nother story about the mindsets uh, to me, you know, that are out here. So I'm letting him know that, yeah, you might have three college degrees and you might have this gentle spirit, but you're six feet, two inches tall. You have this athletic build and you are black driving a nice car. Don't cause 
you know, unneeded attention to yourself. So I'm trying to teach him how to survive black in the rules now, you know, that are here. I'm trying to be intentional like my mother was in teaching us because my mother was very intentional in teaching us how to survive black. My parents grew up, uh, they were born in the 40s in small town, Louisiana. And they knew that even though we had some protection on the military bases, we weren't going to be there, you know, all the time. All the time. We would go back to their home and we would visit. And this is in the 80s. There were still in the 80s um, in, in the town that they grew up in a pool that was for the whites and a pool that was for the blacks. Now the laws had changed, but the mindsets had stayed the same. Correct. So my mom was really intentional. And my mother, she she brilliant lady. Um, but in addition to being a teacher, she was also a, a business. She always had a business. And I remember um, her selling home interior and home interior used to be really beautiful uh decorations for your home but and they would make little figurines like children and angels but they didn't make black children and black angels so my mom would paint them brown and so i saw the things that she was doing and i saw that that meant for me that society might not always have an opening for me. So that means I have to make my own opening. That means I'm not, I should not ever limit myself by the limitations that society has, you know, tries to put on me. And that's, isn't that everything? Because when we talk about, so when we talk about the term white privilege, as soon as it comes out of my mouth, I get pushback on it. People go, well, my life was hard and I had to work three jobs and I didn't just get here because I'm a white person. And I get that. I didn't get here because I'm a white person. I got here because I worked hard and because I was a white person, I actually did have a leg up on someone who was of color. I know that to be true because I worked in corporate America and saw it happen over and over again. So it yeah. doesn't mean that your life wasn't hard. It doesn't mean that you didn't do everything you could to pull yourself up and make your life happen. It just means that the color of your skin was not one of the barriers you had to overcome. And it's Exactly. And the first time I, I did this show was right on the heels of George Floyd's murder. And that's when I said, I have to do something. I have this platform. So I just wanted to talk to my sisters of color to find out what's life like for you. I was brought up a white girl in a white neighborhood. And even though I went to an integrated school, I mean, I went home to my white neighborhood, right? So there are so many things I don't know that I don't know. And I just wanted to be able to shine a light. So this conversation right here is the perfect example of something that a white mother doesn't have to go through. A white mother doesn't have to say to her tall, black, handsome man of a son that you can't be jogging in this neighborhood because people see you running and they're going to think they have to call the cops, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just simple things. My high school age son loves wearing hoodies. And for me, I associate that hoodie with Travion Martin. So right. I can still, I can still remember how I felt when I, I heard his story. I, I can still remember crying when I heard about him dying. Uh, and, and, and when it just seemed like the criminal justice system failed him. And, you know, if this country was willing to admit to 
embracing and profiting over the maladies of social injustice in, 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 and the inequality that is embedded in every institution in this country, that America would have stood behind Sabrina Fulton, Travion's mom, instead of villainizing a 15-year-old boy who didn't deserve to be targeted by a grown man and shot dead by him. But yeah. we ignore these things. We constantly, and that's why it continues to repeat itself just a, one hour away. You know, James Byrd was dragged behind a truck and decapitated. And so America drops its collective jaw in horror over things like this and then com comforts itself with thoughts that these are isolated incidents, but they're not. And as long as we close the book on these stories, instead of leaving them open to study and to understand, they're going to continue to repeat themselves. Absolutely. And you know, the one that I have to say, I don't know how you feel about it. I'd love to get your take on it. I'm starting to breathe a little better and easier because um, Ahmaud Aubrey in Georgia, who was shot with a shotgun because he went into some empty house that was being renovated and wanted to see what it looked like, his murderers were found guilty. Um, uh, George Floyd's murderers have been found guilty. So I'm seeing more movement. And I imagine there's a lot I'm not seeing of no movement. Right. So is it, a, is it, are we starting to feel like, okay, the justice system is starting to turn the tables and turn the tide. Are you feeling that? Or, or is that just me and my rose colored glasses? You know, I'm definitely hopeful that we are seeing changes within our justice system. And the thing is, we just, we want justice. That's all. You know, um, we're not asking for anything special, anything different. We just want to be treated like Americans with the rights that are due all American citizens. So I would hope that our criminal justice system is, is getting better, you know, because I tell my children all the time, the criminal justice, she's not, you know, the lady justice is not blind. She has 20-20 vision. Mm -hmm. And that's why we see this disparity within the justice system. But more so than that, before it even gets there, there has to be something done with the mindset that there is this fear already in people's minds that they have to act so swiftly and quickly with violence if they are uh, coming up against a black suspect. That's why you have a 12-year-old Tamir Rice that was gunned down by a police officer. He had a toy gun and almost immediately witnesses say this officer shot him. So my concern is more so the mindsets that perceives all of those things. Why, why are they so quick? you know, to respond like that. And then we can contrast those with videos of white suspects that seem to just get all the chances in the world, even if they are brandishing a gun at them. It's the mindsets that I'm worried about. It's the mindset that you have Karens in parts calling the police and lying on a black man because lying to the police on a black man is no less dangerous than shooting a gun at him, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and for p white people, me, you know, there's always going to be, well, you know, white people get shot by the cops too. And, you know, there's always going to be that, but it's disproportionate. Yes. Everything is disproportionate. You know, we say there's no slavery. Yes, there is. Black men are in jails, cleaning our roads, cleaning our parks, doing all the menial work that needs to be done. 
they're doing it, but they're not called slaves. They're called prisoners and they're in jail at a disproportionate rate to other races. So if we could just look at that, just look at that. The movie that you mentioned, Whitewash, you said that was on Amazon? It should be available on Amazon. Yes. Good. Look for that on Prime. You know, my my take is always to just shine a light to look. I had this conversation with my brother-in-law over the weekend at a Super Bowl party. My brother-in-law is white and he's in the real estate business and he was talking about the master bedroom. So I said, you know, we don't use the term master bedroom anymore because it likens back to slavery. And of course, his white eyes rolled. Oh, here we go again. We're changing everything. I didn't have any problem with changing the names of the streets, but come on, what do I say instead of master? I say, you say primary, you say main, you don't say master. Well, I don't understand all this. And I said, you know what? You don't have to understand it. You simply have to know that it is an affront to millions of people. And if it is a problem for them, all you have to do is accept the change. You do not have to embrace it or love it. Just know that it's an affront. He was going on about the Redskins. I'm like, don't you get what the Redskins is a racial slur. So this is really, this is a, we have to keep tipping on this, just chipping away at this iceberg, this mountain of I'm socialized white. I don't understand why we have to change the names of the streets. I don't understand why you can't call it a master bedroom. I live in a, I live in Davie, Florida, which is, is right next door to plantation, Florida. Oh, I'm thinking, imagine black people signing their addresses, plantation, Florida. Well, you right? know, Trish, it's, ignorance is bliss sometimes. And I think awareness is so key, you know, um, and awareness is not trying to make anybody feel guilty about anything. Awareness means you begin to acknowledge the role of social, economic and environmental injustice and its impact on black America. You know, race has been a tool to divide us for economic reasons in America more than any other reason. And uneducated whites in particular have grabbed hold of this narrative of, of an inferior race and racism as a scapegoat for their own problems and being so blinded by hate and not economic deprivation they are that they're experiencing, they can't see that they're pawns by those in power to help them stay in power and get wealthier and to pass that wealth on to one generation as, after the next. But, you know, we have to be careful with race being used, you know, as the tool like this, because we're living in a dangerous time in our society where the pitting of, pitting of races against each other is going to continue to weaken our democracy. But because of the global connectedness of our society, a divided America is not going to survive. What superpower is going to stand by with America at war with itself like it did in 1861? <laughs> you know, so we really have to be careful to understand that this issue affects everybody. It doesn't matter what race you are or what social economic status you are in. It impacts us, everybody. Sister, you and me got to go on the road with this because you have put it on the head and you have really put it in a way that it's understandable. So many people don't understand the 
systematic and the systemic racism that we have in our government. Yes, it's better. Yes, we can intermarry now. Hooray. Yes, Black people have rights. But as we say that, we turn around and they're changing the voting laws to make it harder for people on their lower economic scale, to make it harder for people who work for a living to vote. Like, so it's still going on. And we, the people in power, which is the white people, we've got to be the ones that make the change. We've got to stand up and say, this isn't, this, no more. And that's the purpose of our conversation today. And I appreciate all of you listening with an open heart and an open mind. Because Tiffany's passionate about what we're talking about here today because she lived it. And now she's educated to the point where she has a master's degree on what's going on in society, what's happening and what the cause is and what the result is going to be. So Tiffany, thank you for pointing out this is everybody's problem. This is not a black problem or a race problem. This is a something that is eating at the fabric of our democracy. Well, thank you for the opportunity just to have this discussion. And just as much as I want people to be aware, I also you know, want those impacted by, by this, like I teach my children, these are the facts about our society, but it does not have to be your reality. It might mean that it's harder to do things, but it does not mean that we can't. And having that limitation in our head, thinking that I can't do this because I can't go there because has stifled us. And we have to break through that thought by any means necessary. And that takes courage and determination. And my, my friend, you lead the way with that courage and determination and your children are better for it. Our world is better for it and I'm better for it. So I really appreciate you being here. I want to invite you. You can all reach Tiffany at levelingupbychoice.com and be in touch with Tiffany. You know, her work is all around relationships and what we're talking about today goes very deeply into those relationships. And I thank you for mentioning the movie Whitewash, which you can watch on Prime Video. I also want to mention a movie that's on HBO. And I think movies are a great way to educate ourselves because, you know, it's not as easy sometimes to read a 400-page book. Uh, another movie that's on that's about our American history and its recent American history is Judas and the Black Messiah. If you have HBO, I invite you to watch that movie. And take a look at, it was about the early days of the Black Panthers and the lengths that the FBI would go to to try to hold them from gaining more power. So it is American history, right? It's not Black history, it's American history. So I urge you to take a look at either or both of these movies. Tiffany, any last words before we close? I just... Um... I hope that if anything sticks, it this will stick and that we're in this together. A house divided cannot stand. And, you know, this America first uh, philosophy, well, we're all supposed to be Americans. That should then include everybody, you know. Um, so I just I hope we can see the part that we play in perpetuating some of the, this hatred and, and the ignorance that that goes on. And we work, recognize our role in trying to make sure that 
we don't pass this on to the next generation of, of people in this country. Amen to that. Thank you for being here. Thank you all for watching. I look forward to seeing you again next week with another show of Sister to Sister. And thank you for watching and thank you for talking about this with each other because that's what leads to real change. Thanks everybody. Make it a great day.